Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. You know, if there's one topic that Franklin Covey is especially passionate about, it's the topic of building winning cultures. What are the ingredients to build a culture that people choose not to quit, but to give their all to, to choose their highest level of engagement? So it's rare that we pick authors to talk about our most passionate topic, but there is one that rises to the cream of the crop that I think nicely complements Franklin Covey's own point of view, and his name is Daniel Coyle. You may know Daniel as the New York Times bestselling author of the phenomenal book, The Talent Code. He's just written a new book called The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. He lives in between Alaska and Ohio, where he serves as a consultant with the Cleveland Indians. He also is a contributing writer to Outside Magazine. Best-selling author Daniel Coyle, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. It's great to be here with you. Man, from the background, I'm getting the sense that you're broadcasting today not from Alaska, given the green trees in the background. <laughs> well done. You're exactly right. There may be even air conditioner behind me. So, yes, definitely out of Alaska now into beautiful Ohio. Hey, Daniel, I'm excited to spend the majority of our time today talking about the ingredients of building a winning culture. We both have uh, mutual passions. You're a bit of a research scientist around this, so that conversation is going to be helpful. I'd love first to take a, just a couple of moments to talk about the talent code. A lot of your notoriety, fame, influence came from that book. You are a seasoned writer. Maybe first share a bit about your journey. Maybe um, enculturate our audience into who you are, what your expertise and passions are, and what are some of the key learnings that you wrote about in the talent code that maybe inspired you to write the culture code? Yeah, it's so interesting. I guess it starts with where, what you mentioned earlier. I grew up in Alaska. I always had kind of an outsider point of view on things. And one of the things I got obsessed with really early in life, both as a medical student for a time and then as a, as a journalist, was why are people, certain people, really good at things? And why do certain places produce unusual numbers of super talented performers? So I basically went and visited. We all know those places exist. It's the Dominican Republic for shortstops. It's a certain area in, in Russia, a little, little tennis camp in Russia for tennis players, similar places for art, for music, for math. And I went there and I looked at the patterns that they shared. And it turns out that they were all sort of the same place. They were doing the same things, the same practice techniques, the same motivational techniques, because our brains learn in the same way. That process of marrying on the ground research with, with the science brought me the talent code. That's what I wrote the talent code about, which kind of answered that question about individuals, but it also put me in some rooms where I started to ask the next question, which is, okay, if we know how talented individuals are formed, what's happening with certain groups? You walk into certain restaurants, certain schools, certain families, and certain businesses, and they feel different. They feel connected. They feel special. And that simple question, I guess I've sort of made a career of asking big, simple questions. What's going on in those places? led me to the culture code. You know, Dino, one of the premises of your book, which is one that Franklin Covey violently agrees with, is that you know, weak cultures generally rise out of neglect, and that strong cultures clearly come from intentional, deliberate investment. What are some early insights you learned about the difference between the two? What, what are organizations that have strong cultures, who maybe have cracked the culture code doing specifically? Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, I started this project by going to the top 1% performing cult groups in the world, groups that had this track record of amazing success, 
groups that were in the top 1% of their domain, groups like the San Antonio Spurs, Navy SEALs Team 6, Pixar, and IDEO, um, and looking at what their behaviors are. And, and exactly as you say, we often think that culture is sort of just sort of like a group's DNA, like its personality, like it'll just happen naturally. Um, but what I found out was very, very different. What I found were leaders who were very intentionally sending a set of simple behavioral signals. The big insight of the book is that culture is not about what you say, it's about what you do. It's about specific behaviors that establish safety, that establish vulnerability, that create purpose. And the leaders that were in these places, I remember meeting uh, a guy, a guy's name was David Cooper, and he was the guy who trained, he was a Navy SEALs Team 6 leader, and he trained the team that got Bin Laden. And early in our relationship, he said, the most important four words any leader can say are, I screwed that up. Four words, four words. And he didn't always know this coming along. He told some very interesting stories about how he came to know this. But I saw that same signal, the signal of openness and vulnerability helped me out. I don't have all the answers here being sent in all the cultures. So in terms of specific behaviors, that signal of vulnerability ends up being a massive one that most people, most leaders, especially in the C-suite, don't naturally send. They don't naturally send a signal of, help me. I, I, don't, I don't know all the answers. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. I may have screwed up. And that ends up being not just sort of an incidental part of great culture, but a very intentional part of great culture in that they actually don't just let it happen organically, but they send that signal through systems, methods, and group habits that they do together. So they're continually sending these behavioral signals where they give each other better and better feedback to help get better together. Daniel, I could not agree more about the power of vulnerability that leaders need to share to what I call sort of you know, lessen the divide that's between leadership and all the rest of the, the uh, you know, backbone of the organization. I wrote a book about this called Management Mess that great leaders tend to own their own insecurities. They talk about them, they make it safe to not be perfect. In fact, the book is organized around three specific parts or skills, building safety, uh, uh, building vulnerability, sharing vulnerability, and establishing purpose. Let's organize our conversation around those three areas. In fact, in your book, you write that arguably the key ingredient behind building a great culture is establishing this concept called safety. Uh, riff on that for a moment. You know, every group, there's a, there's a basic thing that happens in every interaction. You walk into a room, you walk into a group, and this goes back it's like a deep grammar of human behavior that's millions of years old. We have software in our brains that decide instantly whether we share a future with this group or not, whether we're invested or not, whether they care about us or not. So we're continually monitoring the environment for subtle signals of connection. And in the book, I talk about a very simple experiment. There was a, there was a company called Wipro, which is a call center, that was struggling with retention. 50% of their people left every year. And so in desperation, they tried, they tried everything. They improved the campus. They did all the conventional things. They improved benefits. They improved training. None of it worked until they tried this one-hour experiment. And the one-hour experiment consisted of a really simple thing. They took two training groups. One got conventional training. The other got, the conventional training was where they, they stood in front of the room and they talked about the company. They explained the roles. They talked about the history of the company. And at the end of it, that first group got a sweatshirt that said Wipro on it. The second group, however, they flipped it. Instead of having a training session about Wipro, they had a training session where they asked questions about the trainee. They asked, 
hey, what happens on your best day? Tell me about what happens on your worst day. If we were on a desert island, they asked, what skills would you bring to us surviving on the desert island? And at the end, they got a sweatshirt, but instead of saying Wipro, it had their name on it, their first name, the, the trainee's first name. Spin the clock seven months, and retention in the second group went up 270%. So basically what happened was that in that moment, we normally think of belonging and safety as something that sort of happens accidentally or people feel chemistry, we use that word a lot. We have chemistry or we don't. In fact, chemistry is a set of signals that gets sent or not. And in the case of Wipro, they learned that intentionally sending the signals, sending a really clear signal, we care, we see you, we are invested with you, we, care, we share a future together that simple signal had a massive impact because that's the way we're wired. We're either in or we're out. There's no gray area when it comes to belonging. We are in safety. We are either in or we're out. And companies and leaders who invest in those first five minutes, who invest in those first 30 seconds, who really value sending the signal of who are you? Why are we connected? Here's why I care. Early on, we'll see a benefit in the amount of safety, belonging, and connection that they can create. And that safety is the foundation of everything else in the culture. That safety is the, is the platform on which everything else will happen. So it's by far the most important thing a leader can do. David, let's ex or Daniel, let's expand on that concept around culture and retention. I recently interviewed David Epstein, who you know as, of course, the best-selling author of the recent book, Range, kind of swept the nation by storm. And uh, David confessed something in this interview that I really resonated with. He said, you know, I was kind of tired of hiding behind other people's quotes, so I went out and researched what really happens. My own confession, I'm one of those many people who repeats this often heard phrase that people don't quit their jobs, they quit their bosses, or they now quit their cultures. Often Gallup is attributed to that. What's been your experience in terms of the truthfulness behind that kind of pithy quote that I say all the time, that people don't quit their jobs, they quit their bosses and their cultures. What does your research show between the real quantifiable correlation with people belonging to a culture they love and their decision to stay and not take a recruiter's call? I think it's deeply, deeply true. And it, it, it's not something that happens in the rational mind. It's something that happens in that level of the amygdala, which is the deepest part of the human brain, where you decide whether you're in or you're out. And I've seen this up close um, in my work with the Cleveland Indians. We often are in a position where a small market team that's had a lot of success in each offseason, there are a lot of people who get approached on our team by other teams. Right now, I think there are six general managers in Major League Baseball who started as Cleveland Indians interns. Wow. So we're basically a farm team that gets a lot of offers. And the people who stay, um, some people leave, of course, but a lot of people stay because of that deep connection, because of those relationships. And I think one way I conceive of it is that we often think of culture as being um, sort of the, the, the type of work environment that is created. That we think of culture, we think, well, we want to have, in the Silicon Valley sense, ping pong and fun things. And, but the truth is that there is no, there's shallow fun, which is experiential, and then there's deep fun. And deep fun consists of solving hard problems together problem with quality people, with people you admire. And so what I think people need to understand about culture, and you see this actually in the Navy SEALs, you see people leave the SEALs and then they come back. And when you ask them why they came back, what they say is, I, I didn't like it, but I just loved it. I loved 
solving hard problems with people I admire. And so thinking of your business, not as a place to create shallow fun, where we're gonna have ping pong and beer and we're gonna all have a sort of happy time together, but rather what environment can you create that puts people who admire each other solving hard problems shoulder to shoulder, because that's deep fun. And that's something you can't get anywhere and something that keeps people when, when opportunities to leave come along. Uh, Dana, let's talk about the role that vulnerability plays in great cultures. Uh, I also interviewed Liz Wiseman, one of our first guests in this series, a good friend of mine now, of course wrote the seminal book, Multipliers, where a key premise is don't be the genius in the room, rather be the genius maker. And, and kind of while you're at it, you know, admit that occasionally you're not going to be a multiplier. You're gonna be what she calls an accidental diminisher. I have been evangelizing and speaking and writing and blogging about the power of vulnerability for the better part of my career now, because I think it is such a powerful insight, is that there is a bit of a chasm, a separation between once you become the leader, you're supposed to have all the answers, that the buck stops with you. In some cases, that there's truth in that, but generally there creates a divide, except for when you've got a leader that's confident enough, that's humble enough where they can admit they're not perfect, they don't have all the answers, we're kind of in it together, I think there is a glue that develops there, and you speak about it, I think you might even call it the vulnerability loop. Talk about the, the uh, indisputable contribution that vulnerability uh, connects to with culture. Yeah. No, Scott, I, I could not agree with you more. When, and, and often when we think about leadership, our conventional idea of leadership is, is often based on a historical idea of what a great leader is, a great, a great person, a strong person with clear views. And the truth is that that can work with simple problems. If you are trying to build a bridge, if you are trying to run a football team, call a play, have a top-down authoritative scheme that you're trying to execute, if you're trying to run a factory, um, it, can be, it can be effective to be an authoritative leader. But however, the world has changed. The easy problems have been solved. What I've heard a beautiful quote the other day. They said, what efficiency was to the previous generation relationships are to today. And what that is speaking to is the fact that in order to solve the hard problems we have today, we need to have teams that come together to be more than the sum of their parts. We cannot simply tell people what to do. We need to create teams that know what the next right thing is, that move, teams that can move and adapt to problems, almost like a, a flock of birds moving through a forest where they see a problem, navigate around it and keep going without having to stop and being told what to do. And the key thing in that is to have leaders who overcome the authoritarian bias that we all have as humans. Whenever you put us in any kind of hierarchy, we will bow to the leader and create distance. And so leaders who actively diminish that distance through vulnerability, leaders who actively send that signal. And one of the better ways I've seen to do it is also one of the simplest. It's called the two-line email. This is something that Laszlo Bach, who runs Humu, who should be a guest on your, on your program, by the way, recommends. It's, a, it's an email that leaders send to their group, a very simple email, and it simply has two lines. It says, one, please tell me one thing you'd like me to keep doing. Number two, please tell me one thing you'd like me to stop doing. You're not asking for 10 things. You're not asking for a full review. You just ask for one thing. But in that tiny email, you're sending a really important signal of vulnerability. I'm curious, I need, I need your help. Help me be better. Um, I'm not perfect. And that diminishes that interpersonal chasm that you're talking about. And that lets people get feedback. Another way to do it 
is through an AAR. It's an, called an after action review, which is right after any sort of event, any sort of sales call, any sort of any quarter where you go back and you talk about real simple things. What went well, what didn't go well, and what will we do differently next time? It's best if these are led by the non-powerful person in the group, by the non-leader. And these habits can almost like a like physical exercise um, create create connection, trust, closeness, and diminish that interpersonal chasm and create kind of a group brain. It's funny. We know how exercise works in the human body. When you stretch yourself and you feel uncomfortable, you get stronger. Group life is built exactly the same way. Those moments of vulnerability, which are, as we all know, really hard to do. It's hard as a leader to send an email, tell me one thing that I should stop doing. It's hard to say, I screwed that up. But that pain is actually not pain. That pain is progress. That pain is a sign that your group is growing in trust, that your group is growing together, that you're getting better feedback, and that your flock of birds, if we want to call it that, can be close enough and connected enough to navigate around the problems that you will face. Daniel, let's further unpack this concept from moving from effectiveness to relationships. Our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, called it moving from, or rather, efficiency to relationships. Dr. Covey called it moving from an efficiency mindset to an effectiveness mindset. His quote was, with people, slow is fast, and fast is slow. It's a huge struggle for me because I'm a very productive, efficient person, and I know that with people, I've got to slow down and move to an effectiveness mindset. From your research, your speaking, your consulting, your writing, any actionable tips you would give the leader like me, very productive, well-intended, but sometimes confuses efficiency and relationships. What are some things you'd advise people like me to do differently after this interview? Yeah, well, there's a deep insight I would share with you. Um, it's, it's from, uh, you like quotes, so here's a good one. It's from coach John Wooden of UCLA, uh, best basketball coach ever. And his quote was, you haven't taught until they've learned. A lot of times we confuse as leaders and as people, we confuse speaking with understanding. We say, because I said it, they got it. And what I see with good leaders is a keen focus on checking for understanding, on making sure the words land and a relentless, tireless ability. They're almost athletic communicators in their willingness to repeat, in their willingness to, to go back. And for them, it doesn't feel like repetition because they're always seeking to make those words and that message land. Um, Second thing I would, I would think about as you sort of seek to follow that slowing down is better is, is deep attention to listening. Listening is probably the most underrated skill on the planet. And the ones who do it well have a technique that I, that I really like. It actually hinges around three words. And there are three words that I would encourage you to, to use more often, which is tell me more. A lot of people come to us with questions as leaders. And when they come to us, we have a tendency and an urgency, a, a, an instinct to try to answer them, to, to add value, to say, hey, in my case, this is what I tried and this is what I worked. That's actually the wrong thing to do most of the time. The question they're bringing isn't really the tension. The question they're bringing isn't really the deep question. Your job is to surface that tension, to get them to talk about it more, to give you context to go deeper and deeper so that you're together surfacing this thing and talking about it. So using those three words, tell me more. Um, and finally, thirdly, I'd say there's one simple thing you can do, um, which is another question you can ask. When you walk around 
and, and meet with people. And this actually isn't that slow. It's actually kind of fast, but it's a way to slowly build relationships. Um, ask people this question. If you could change one thing about the way we work, what would it be? It's a short question, but it's a deep question. And you'll find that the answer you get can create a good vulnerability loop and increase closeness and really good feedback on, on what you could potentially do better. Daniel, thank you for that. Let's talk about establishing pur purpose, the, the ingredient that that plays in leaders helping to shape great teams in a, a winning culture. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I always thought going into this project, my understanding of groups was that grace purpose kind of existed in their heart, that you didn't have to explain to a Navy SEAL or to a member of the San Antonio Spurs what their purpose was because it was in their gut and in their heart. I could not have been more wrong um, because everywhere I went in these high-performing groups, I saw and heard and felt the use of corny mantras. They filled the oxygen, they filled the room, they filled their space with these sort of really corny, simple, uh, catchphrases and mantras that captured what their purpose was. If, if the SEALs, they would always talk about, well, we shoot, move, and communicate. That's what SEALs do. They do those three things. They shoot, move, and communicate. The only easy day was yesterday. If you were, um, if you were at the San Antonio Spurs, they always talk about, about pounding the rock, pounding the rock. We have to keep pounding the rock. Why do they, why do they do this? On the one hand, it seems kind of silly, but in fact, Purpose doesn't reside in your heart. It resides in your windshield. The world is a really distracting place. It's easy to forget in the midst of all the chaos of work life what's important. And groups that are really adept at distilling, it seems corny to sort of say pound the rock. It seems corny to say we shoot, move, and communicate. But it actually is incredibly powerful because it works like kind of a GPS signal on the windshield. It tells you what's important all the time, what's important now, where true north is and spending time capturing that. And one exercise that I've seen people do, that leaders use to, to accomplish that is building a mantra map. Really trying to distill what is true north and then talking about simple ways to get there, capturing the actions that you want people to take, the priorities that you want them to have, the choices that you want them to make. Um, and I tell the story in the book of a restaurateur uh, named Danny Meyer that some of your listeners and watchers may have, may have been at his restaurants. Uh, he runs Gramercy Tavern, um, Shake Shack, uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of top end restaurants and fast food. And he has distilled his mantras into a handful of wonderful catchphrases that have to do with um, don't be a gatekeeper, that have to do with no skunking, defining what not to do talking about loving problems, talking about athletic hospitality, the excellence reflex. And there was one morning I was having breakfast with Danny and uh, we were talking and it was a beautiful, quiet restaurant, Maialino in New York. And all of a sudden there was a big crash and Danny Meyer start, stopped talking to me. And he started, he looked across the room and I said, what are you looking for? Because a, a waiter had dropped a tray of glasses on the floor. And there's been a little crisis there over in the corner and everyone's hustling over to, to help. And he goes, I'm looking because one of two things is about to happen. Either this group is gonna come together and clean up this and the energy level is gonna go up or there's gonna be some hint of anger or resentment or blame and the energy level is going to go down. If the energy level goes up, I know the culture is strong here. If the energy level goes down, I know it's weak. Which is just a beautiful litmus test for culture. How does that group respond when there's a problem, when there's a crisis? What do they do? And he supports that moment 
by filling the oxygen with these corny mantras, the, the excellence reflex, loving problems, athletic hospitality, all these things that sound so corny are actually genius. They're like simple algorithms to guide the group where, around crisis to where it wants to go. Daniel, where were you 20 years ago when I became a first leader? I could have used you as my coach. When you were sharing the restaurant story, I kind of knew where you were going, but I was thinking about times as a leader, how I would have either brought the energy up or down based on some mistake the team made or disappointment. So I had a moment of uh, self-reflection there. Don't tell me more, because <laughs> I think I got it on that one. Um, you write about in the book, and you talked about in our interview in the beginning a little bit, the role, the vitality that having a strong first orientation experience is to retention and building culture. Would you speak specifically to all the organizational leaders, the chief learning officers, CHROs, everybody who's a team leader listening, watching today, when they're inviting new employees into the organization, what are some research proven specific behaviors that you would advise every orientation leader or every leader to implement immediately to get yep. that first couple of hours, days of someone's experience locked in? These are not my ideas or ideas I've, I've witnessed in, in very high performing groups, so I'm gonna steal them then. One, know their name before they get there. Do not look at the name tag, do not rely on the name tag. Spend some time looking at pictures, learning a little something, that first interaction. There's something called critical moments theory, which is, which is really interesting. It's, it's all team function comes down to a few three, three critical moments. One is the first five minutes. How well does that go? How well are you sending those signals of safety and connection? Number two is the first disagreement. What norms get set up? Does the authority just come in and solve it for you? Or do you actually work through the problem and truly listen to everybody? That's critical moment number two. Critical moment number three is the first feedback. The first time where you get together and learn together. So those moments of introduction, collision, and learning are the ones that will define how the team functions. So maximize, maximize those. So really start that first thing, learn everybody's name. Daniel, you know, can I interrupt you there? Yeah. It's such a profound insight. Uh, 23 years ago, I left the Disney company, Walt Disney Company Orlando, and joined then the Covey Leadership Center, which became Franklin Covey. And I was about two months into my role. I left, you know, as a small fish in a big sea, I wanted to earn my way into being a big fish in a small sea. I joined a much smaller company, Covey Leadership Center. And I was at the annual kickoff, meaning about two or three months into my new job, and at a big conference center, and the president of the company, not Stephen R. Covey, but one of the divisional presidents uh, was helping um, get ready to give his keynote speech. And prior to the morning kickoff, he came over to me and asked me if I worked for the hotel, could I help him organize some extension cords? And I remember thinking, no, you idiot, I work for you. And I was yeah. only 26 yeah. years old, but you know, here 23, letter, 23 years later, I can tell you his name, what time of day it was, where I was standing. Not that he could have known everybody's name, but it had an indelible imprint like, wow, you don't even know who I am. And I've worked here for about three months now. It's unbelievable. And imagine, just to replay that, imagine if he had said, hey, here's my speech. Could you go through it and tell me what you think? Help wow. me out, like yeah. make some improvements yeah. here. And, and he and I are friends to this day, he's a good guy. But it speaks yeah, to your point that we weren't so big that he probably should have known you know, that I worked for the company and not for the facility. Those moments, as you, as you are living, you're embodying this fact, those moments 
are not like any other moment. They happen in HD. They are printed indelibly on the memory of the people who experience them. And they don't seem like a big deal to leaders. So leaders who are smart will take the time and invest the time to really learn deeply. And then not just learn that, learn what their name is and where they're from, but to actually springboard off of that and ask for help during that time. Ask them if you didn't to engage them early in the relationship to say, look, and I see this happen at the Cleveland Indians all the time. They'll have a new intern and we'll have a new series coming up. And the president of the, of the, of the team will ask the intern, what do you think of this picture? What do you think we should do? And that sets up the norms for everything that follows. It's a tiny moment and it means the world in terms of establishing how we're gonna work together. The rules of engagement and the, the rules of engagement are, you're gonna do whatever I tell you, this is gonna be an authoritarian place. It's vastly different than, hey, we're all working together and I'm really curious about what you think. Dino, I interrupted you. Tell me more about um, the topic of how you, you know, specifically invite people and treat them in, in the organization. Yeah. Another thing that people do is, is use the ambassador system to really, when you're bringing new people in, to link them actively and formally to people who already work there. Because as a leader, you can't be that person. You have to create sort of a, a Ponzi type connection where people, where new, new arrivals are welcoming even newer arrivals all the time and bring them in. Third thing, spend deep time on the values of the group. On, on the values, on spending. I've seen groups spend one day on each value if there are three core values, to spend time on that. Number four thing, get the logistical stuff really, really clear and out of the way. People, there's a lot of anxiety over where to park, where to eat lunch, what to wear, and get those really clearly established up front so you remove that anxiety and can actually connect with the people that you're working with. Um, so, and, and, and lastly, ask that group for, ask this new group of new arrivals for continual feedback on how their experience is going. They're the ones who are gonna teach you how to refine your orientation even more. And all of this, all of these tips are sort of colored by the fact that I think workers in today's environment, those signals of belonging are more important than ever. You know, this world is moving fast. People are jumping jobs. There's not a not as much in our generation. I would say, Scott, you know, you'd sort of stay with one company for a pretty long time, and that that's not the world anymore. So, finding taking maximal advantage of that first five minutes, that first day, that first week, ends up being massively, massively important. Daniel, how do winning cultures deal with uh, brilliant jerks? They have zero tolerance for them. That's the interesting thing that I found. When I visited these places for the book, I, I expected that they would sort of tolerate brilliant jerks because these were brilliant performers. And, and there's kind of a history, certainly in Silicon Valley, certainly in sports, that, um, that boy, well, it's really your talent level that matters more than your character at times. What I found is with high-performing groups these days, there is zero tolerance. In fact, the San Antonio Spurs have built it into their scouting report they have a scouting report on every player in the country that measures everything about them that you can measure. And at the bottom is a single line with a box next to it. And the line says, not a spur. And if that box is checked, they will not draft that player no matter how good they are. Because they realize that being a jerk, and the science actually holds this up to a, a wonderful degree, that jerks diminish the group performance by 30 to 40% in experiments. And I think we all are familiar with how that happens in real life, the poisonous effect of a jerk and the antidote effect, the signal you send when you remove a brilliant jerk ends up being a very powerful signal to the whole group of how we expect to behave together and how, and the norms for behavior that we're going to have. So they really, um, 
there's a there's a there's a a, a rugby team, uh, the All Blacks of New Zealand, which is the one of the world's greatest sports teams, um, where they have formulated it into a, into a mantra of their own that is no dickheads, no dickheads if you're on that team, and it makes it really clear to make that explicit as opposed to just implicit to actually have that be part of your values um, is a powerful place to stand as a leader. Daniel, beyond um, human resources and learning and orientation uh, associates, which are enormously valued to culture, cult, building culture, speak to the platform, the business leaders, people who are running the business that are hiring people on their teams. What are some behaviors, a couple, three or four top behaviors that you think can best contribute to creating this high-performing team, to creating a winning culture? What specifically should leaders be doing immediately to build their teams? I think I think one of the things has to do with always paying continual attention to how the team is interacting. Now that's not performance and that's not strategy. That is explicit investment in defining the rules of engagement on the team. How are we going to behave together? And I've seen teams do this in very personalized, explicit ways, where the first thing a team does is that they decide, okay sort of give it, let's all share um, kind of an operating manual for dealing with each other. When do you like to get, when do you get most of your work done? Are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? When should we meet? When should we assess? Really engaging all the team in that conversation where you're spending time on the team function. And then as, it, as the project goes along, assessing that function. How are we doing? Are we still excited about this? What excites us the most about this? What are we scared of right now? And spending time deliberately talking about that. That to me is, a, is it feels, there's so many moments when it comes to being a leader in this new world of building great teams where it feels like you're wasting time, where it feels like you're given this dilemma of pushing performance and progress versus caring for the people or attending to the people. And the reflex I've seen that good leaders have is that when they are faced with that dilemma, they bias toward the people. They check in on the people. They see how the team is functioning. They assess that function. They inquire about that functioning. So that dilemma that we all have, I think, it goes back to your comment earlier, Scott, about slow. It feels slow. It feels frustrating. And yet, you end up getting more out of it because the team figures out how to function together. Another explicit thing that leaders can do is to do a culture capture. Now, a culture capture is a really simple exercise where you, you, you sort of survey your group and you ask them to identify some very basic things about the culture. What excites them? What frustrates them? What's the greatest challenge? What are the greatest tensions? Um, what are they most proud of? Kind of 10 questions around to try to generate them to talk about what they appreciate most and, and don't like the most about the culture. And then what you do is you try to capture the tensions that they're talking about. The great insight I think that good leaders have about culture is that it's not always fun that having hard conversations is the core of it and defining what those hard conversations are is one of the most important things you can do as a leader. And a culture capture helps you do that. I'll tell you the example that we did at the Cleveland Indians. Um, we, we're, we're, we're a baseball team and baseball is changing fast. The big data has changed baseball. Technology has changed baseball. Moneyball has changed baseball. The way we value developed players, it's changing fast. And it's a very traditional sport. A lot of people are in it or, or have been in it for a long time. So we're going through this great period of change. Through our culture capture, we identified three areas that we needed to focus on, three, three tension pillars, you might call them. 
We need to care for players, but we also need to be very candid with them. That's, that's a tension point. How often do we care? How do we care? But then how do we tell them the truth? We need to be traditional, and yet we also need to innovate. We can't throw away the value of how, how teams were built and how, how baseball was played, but we continually have to push the edge technologically to keep up and to set the bar. And thirdly, we have to develop players, and yet we also have to win games. These are We have to make players better, but we we got to win. We can't just throw people out there and say, we don't care if we win. We really care if we win. So these tensions, identifying them, spotlighting them, talking about them is one of the most powerful things you can do because it, it carves out a space to have those hard conversations. What your what you're people listening to this podcast, what you do is hard. It's, it's hard to lead complex organizations in a complex, fast-moving world. So embrace that hardness, acknowledge it, and name the tensions that you face and create conversations around them. And a culture capture is a nice tool to help you do that. Daniel, I fear for you, you're in a bit of a bind because you've now written two best-selling books, The Talent Code, uh, The Culture Code. What's next for you? You know, I'm trying to figure that out. We're gonna, I'm going to do a little follow-up to The Culture Code called The Culture Playbook, which is designed, I think, like this, uh, like, like your newsletter is designed, to give people uh, as many concrete, helpful tools as they can, uh, tools that are shamelessly stolen from the best companies in the world and the best groups in the world. Um, I'm fascinated by, right now I find myself thinking a lot about the power of story, uh, the power of narrative to guide behavior, attention, values. Um, to me, it's the most powerful force on the planet. Uh, and so I'm curious to see how that plays, uh, how that plays out in this performance space. Daniel Coyle, author of The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. I appreciate you joining us today. Fantastic read, everybody. It's a great guide for leaders to actionably build a better culture on your teams. Daniel, thank you for joining us today for On Leadership. Hey, Scott, it was a blast. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure, man. Big fans at Franklin Covey. And thank you for joining us. If you haven't subscribed to On Leadership, click on the On Leadership tab by visiting franklincovey.com. It's a free weekly newsletter. It comes out every Tuesday via email featuring a different guest like Daniel Coyle. You can also access it on all your favorite podcast platforms. Subscribe yourself, your family, your friends, everybody on your team. And we'll see you back here next week for a new guest on Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Thanks for joining.